As you're seated, if you would, please open the Bible, God's Word, to Galatians chapter 4. We continue studying through this great letter from Paul to the churches in Galatia and to our church as we've been learning so much and been blessed so much by what God has had to teach us about the pure divine gospel from God to us in Jesus. And we read verses 21 to 31 of Galatians 4 this morning together. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Father, thank you for the truth of freedom in Christ because of the gospel. Lord, that we can't earn and we don't have to earn anything from you. Lord, your grace comes to us freely because of Jesus, his love for us. Lord, I pray that you would grow our love for him as we study your word this morning in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, last week we did look at some of the consequences of falling for false teaching, even, even wrong teaching, uh, some of the effects that those have in our lives. And we talked about a few of them, but we looked really specifically at the two that Paul mentioned in the verses before this, that falling for wrong and even false teaching can lead to a splintered fellowship between believers and then a stunted growth in Christ. Really, we talked about some really drastic consequences, um, eternal punishment, um, fellowship broken, no growth in Christ, a lot of terrible things. Really, false teaching and wrong teaching eats away at everything about the gospel, what the gospel is and what it does in our life. You think about the, what the gospel is and, and what it does for us, how, how many blessings and benefits there are that our sins are forgiven right now, all of my sins, not just the sins that I have committed, but have committed even this morning and will commit tomorrow. In the gospel of Jesus, those are forgiven, and we are redeemed by Jesus. He brings us fellowship with other believers, brothers and sisters, who also are redeemed and forgiven. In the gospel, we have hope. We have assurance of salvation. He gives us life in the gospel. He brings faith it brings love. It brings so much. I mean, every time we get together, we're talking about the gospel, uh, who Jesus is, what he did, what he's doing now in our life because of what he did and who he still is. And, and there's so much we're literally going to spend forever finding out all of the grace of God because of the gospel in our lives. But wrong teaching 
false teaching eats away at all of that. And sometimes it'll pinpoint one or two areas in our life, and we'll, we'll start to notice one or two areas where we're just not believing the same things we used to, and we're, we, we notice some feelings that are changing. Sometimes it pinpoints one area, your, your hope for the future. Oh, it's just, you know, that things are just too bad in the world. It's just hopeless. Or, you know, I just, I don't... I don't really love Jesus like I should, and, and this false teaching just eats away at our love for Jesus, and then it starts to impact our love for other people. It's like that bacteria. Have you heard of the, the it's a really terrible bacteria, necrotizing fasciitis? It's called the flesh-eating bacteria. It just eats away at your living tissue. That's what wrong teaching and false teaching does to us. The living tissue of the gospel in us, it just eats away at it. Sometimes it just attacks the whole thing, the whole body of truth, and just and goes after it in our hearts and minds. So we need to be watching for it and watching for the symptoms. And that's what we talked about last week. But the question this morning is, what do we do about it when we see it? How do we counteract it? We're watching for it, and when we're seeing the consequences of it, you know, I don't feel like I should go to church. I don't feel like I want to be around other believers, and I don't feel like I want to read the Bible. How do we counteract the things that we're believing that are leading to those things, those consequences of wrong teaching and false teaching? How do we get rid of this infection? Well, that's what Paul does here. Let's deal with this, Paul says. And he's been dealing with it throughout the letter to this point, but he continues, and he not only gives them the scriptural answer, he doesn't, not only gives them the antidote for it, but he gives us the model for how to counteract it in whatever form it takes. Whenever we start to see it, we start to feel it, we're, we're seeing ourselves drift away, and we're feeling ourselves just kind of fall away from the Word and from prayer and from being with other believers in worship and fellowship. What do we do? Now, we don't have the exact arguments that the Judaizers were making in Galatia. And in a way, it's good because then we can't say, well, this is only how to deal with what they said. And, you know, there's all kinds of other false teaching out there and wrong teaching, so how do we deal with that? He he doesn't give us the specifics, one, because the Galatians already knew, uh, two, because it's helpful for us to know that this is the model. But also, based on what Paul does here, it seems pretty clear that the false teachers had come into the churches in Galatia using the Bible. Now, it's probably not very surprising to us that a false teacher is not going to come in and say, hi, my name is uh, Fred. I'm a false teacher. Uh, I'm going to steer you away from the Bible. We'd probably say, nice to meet you, Fred. I'm not going to listen to anything you have to say, right? A, A wrong teacher, a false teacher will come in with the Scripture, and that's what they were doing. They came in, and they were trying to make their points, and they were starting to convince people in the churches that they were correct because they were using God's Word. They were using, particularly, it looks like they were using Genesis and the account of Abraham. So here's what it seems that they were saying to them. God chose Abraham and his son Isaac, and and Abraham was going to be the blessing for everybody, and that blessing was going to come through his son Isaac. And then from Isaac came Jacob, and then also known as Israel, and then the 12 tribes of Israel, and God's law came to those people. So God gave his commandments to Israel, his law, his word. He expected them to to keep it, to obey it. Therefore, the only way to be God's people, they may have said, and then they were telling people, the only way to be saved is to be born Hebrew and obey the law. 
But since there's a lot of people out there who aren't Hebrew, they're not Jewish, for you Gentiles, if you want to become saved, you must convert to Judaism, be circumcised, and then you can be considered one of us, and then you must obey the law. You've got to believe what God says, because here's what we are telling you that it says, and then start obeying. That's how they interpreted Genesis and the account of Abraham and really the rest of the Old Testament. You've got to become like us. We're God's chosen people. We're born into His grace. So if you want to be part of that, you've got to get yourself into His grace. Transfer yourself over by being circumcised and then start to follow all the rest of His law to keep yourself in God's grace. It was all the efforts of rule-keeping, law-keeping. And it was very convincing to them. You know, look, these guys are using Scripture. They're, they're quoting Bible verses. And they're so knowledgeable. And they seem so holy and so good. They've got everything together. Isn't that how false teachers would present themselves? Isn't that what we would see from someone who wants to come in and draw us away into a different little g gospel? They come as intelligent, as if they know the Bible. They use Bible verses and and, and accounts from the Old Testament and New Testament. It can be very convincing. And as we saw last week, they can even flatter us with their teaching. So it feels really good. Just as as an example, one rabbi said that he was able to derive the real meaning from Scripture by looking at the hooks and the crooks of the Hebrew letters in the words and just start to count and, and measure the hooks and the crooks and the spaces and, and all of the pieces and parts, and that's when you actually get the real meaning of a text, when you can decipher the codes. Another writer allegorically interpreted the cherubim at the Garden of Eden. Remember when Adam and Eve were were cast out and the the angels there were guarding the, the gate? He said, well, that's actually a symbol of God's loving kindness and sovereignty. And and we're not quite sure how he got to that. Some of you may have a a Newberry reference study Bible. It strays into this territory a little bit when it starts to suggest that Joseph's wife, Asenath, is a type of the church. I don't know how they get to that, but it sounds scholarly. Oh, an obscure character that that I don't know much about, and, and there's a connection there, and it can sound so learned and intelligent. It sounds impressive, but as it eats away the flesh of the gospel in us, our our softened hearts, it eats away at our faith, it begins to produce those consequences that we talked about last week. And if we're able to recognize the false teaching or the effects, what do we do? How do we counteract it? Well, that's what Paul does here in three steps in these verses. Number one, step one. In verses 21 to 23, the first step is to read Scripture. Read it. Tell me, Paul says, you who want to be under the law. Again, as we have seen, no one makes you believe lies. No one makes us fall for false teaching. We do it ourselves because we want it, because it appeals to us. We like it better than the truth, and we've got to remember this. We've got to come to terms with this and just be ready that our flesh is going to want the false teaching over the gospel instead of the gospel. It's more comfortable. We're more used to it. We can identify with it more easily. Oh, do this, do that, do that. Okay, I can do that. I've got that, right? That makes us comfortable. We will default to that. In fact, (laughs) this may be surprising, I heard a person in our church recently say, Oh, I remember the good old days when we had rules. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> you had the truth of the gospel 
freedom in Christ. Jesus was, he said in, in chapter 3, verse 1, publicly portrayed as crucified. Jesus himself clearly, publicly there. But you've turned to something else. You want something else, or you're starting to, you're drifting, Paul is saying to these people. You're not even under it totally. You want to be. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you even listen to the law? This is how he starts. He says, okay, the law is so important to you. You want to follow it and obey it. Okay, so let's listen to it. You want to talk Bible? Let's talk Bible, he says. Let's go to the Bible. Let's go to what it says. Now, he doesn't quote the whole passage about Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael because it's four chapters in Genesis. It's chapters 16, 17, 20, and 21. You have those in your notes. It would be a lot to quote. But more likely, as we said, this is where the Judaizers were going. These were the verses they were familiar with because of these teachers who were coming in. So, if you've ever wondered why we try to make it such a big deal to strategic, I mean, to, to uh, systematically go through the Scriptures and, and deal with every passage, this is why, because we're not trying to strategically uh, overlook things and just leave things out. That's what these false teachers were doing. We're not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. We're trying to say, look, this is what God's Word says, not what we think is important. So, Paul says in verse 22, look, when you read those chapters in Genesis, Abraham had two sons, not just one. Now, he's not talking about later on when Abraham has children with Keturah after Sarah dies. That's not part of the consideration in these passages. He says Abraham didn't only have one son, he had two. One son came from a slave woman, Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. The other one came from a free woman. That was Sarah herself. The big deal for the Judaizers here was that they were saying, you had to be born of Abraham. You either have to be born of Abraham or you have to be circumcised to be like one born of Abraham. But Paul is saying that can't be the deciding factor because look at Ishmael. He was born of Abraham. They skipped over that part. When they interpreted these verses, when they read these verses to you, they just skipped right over that. It's not enough just to be born of Abraham, nor is it enough to be circumcised because Ishmael also was circumcised. So the whole basis of this false teaching that's come in for your work salvation is wrong from the beginning because they're misreading the Scripture. They're skipping parts. He goes on in verse 23, the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So what Paul does here is refer them to the Scripture, reading it for all that it says, not just what you might want it to say. He says, don't skip over it. Don't skim it. Read it. Get all of it. If you remember, as we studied Genesis, God's promise was that Abraham would have many, many sons. Lots of, you wouldn't be able to count them all, like the stars in the sky, right? But Abraham didn't even have one yet when God told him that. So he said, God, can my servant, is my servant going to be the one? God said, no. Well, he and Sarah didn't know how God was going to fulfill that promise. They didn't see it. They were waiting, so they decided to use their own efforts. You recall from Genesis. Sarah said, Abraham, take my maidservant Hagar, have a son with her, we'll just count him as mine. So Abraham, in Genesis 16, obeyed the voice of Sarah, implied there, rather than the voice of God, waiting on his promise. They used their own efforts, their rules, in the place of God's promise. And so they said, look, Sarah is barren. She's been barren for 76 years. She's 76 years old. She's not going to have a son. There's no way for her to give birth to a child. So they used Hagar, her maidservant. And so they did what they needed to do to have a child, and she had a son. But those were the rules and the laws that they worked under. Those were the efforts that they made to try to do 
what only God could do. So Ishmael was born. And Abraham said, okay, it wasn't my servant. God, will you use this son, Ishmael? God said, no, not him either. 14 years later, Isaac was born to a 90-year-old mother and a 100-year-old father. That's how Isaac was born. He was born to a woman who was barren, who could not have any children. If she, was, if she was barren before at 90 years old, certainly she's still barren, right? I mean, that's the way Genesis 18 says, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. It wasn't going to happen. It was impossible for Sarah to give birth to a son, but God, amen, God gave Abraham a son through Sarah in a way that was not possible, wasn't fleshly possible. That's what verse 23 says here in Galatians 4. The difference between Ishmael and Isaac was that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, while Isaac was born through promise. So the very first thing Paul did to counter the false teaching was just to read the Scriptures. (laughs) Just read what it said. What does it say? That's what it said. There were two sons of Abraham. Both were circumcised. The false teachers had built an entire system around just ignoring what was obvious in Genesis. Listen, that's the same strategy that Jesus used. You remember in Luke chapter 6, his disciples were walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, and they're hungry. So they would pick some of the grain and rub in their hands to get the edible part, and they would eat it. And the the Pharisees came and said, how can you do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus said, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and he and those who were with him? So the first step that we should do to counter false teaching is let's read what God has said. Let's read the Word. Sometimes false teaching can be so easily spotted if we would just read what God said. For example, take the idea that Christians should, you should only expect to have a happy, easy life and everybody like you, as long as you have enough faith, right? People have said that. People teach those kinds of things. And then you happen to read 2 Timothy 3 where he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Or Jesus' words in John 15, 19, if, the, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world and I have called you out of the world, I chose you out of it, therefore the world hates you. So we read what Jesus said, we read what God says in his word, and suddenly the false teaching just, well, I can't believe what that says, because the word flatly rejects whatever was taught. So we've seen some dangerous, some, some dangers of, of false teaching and how it can eat away at us. And so we need to be concerned about it, but we don't want to be f- afraid of it because we have the Word of God that's more powerful than any of man's ideas, anything that can come against the truth, the gospel. And so another side warning here, and we don't have time to expand on this much, but don't get excited about any teaching that you hear until you read the Word of God and find that it's there. And then if you've verified it, then get very excited. (laughs) Then get life-changingly excited. That's what we should be doing with teaching. Acting like the Bereans of Acts 17, let's just read it. Well, that's step one. Let's read Scripture. Step two, what Paul does here in this model for us, and and as he corrects the, the Galatians, is that he will relate the meaning of Scripture, verses 24 to 27. Relate the meaning of Scripture. He says, this may be interpreted allegorically, and there's so much to discuss here, so much to unpack. We'll try to go step by step without going too quickly, but the first thing to notice is that Paul moves from simple observation of the text to what we call interpretation of the text. What did it say? Now, what does it mean? 
often you can't tell if a doctrine, a teaching is false or wrong just by reading. You've got to make sure that you understand what the Bible says. We've said if a, Bible, if a, if a teaching doesn't come from the Bible directly and you can see that, cast it out, reject it, get rid of it. But sometimes it's a little harder to tell. It'll come on the basis, some sort of basis of Scripture. That's what the Judaizers did. That's what Satan did, right? When he came to Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, and he was tempting Jesus, he didn't, he didn't just come with man's foolish ideas. He came with the, with the Bible. Satan quoted God's Word to Jesus, but it was all ripped out of context. It was misapplied, misinterpreted. There was a problem. So don't just read the Scripture to combat false teaching. Interpret it. Understand what it says and means. And that's what we're looking at here. But if you've been through any of our classes, knowable word or preach the word or, or you're in a koinonia group and you've talked about studying the scriptures and you see this word allegorical here, you may have a shiver run up your spine like, oh, I thought we weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> it's important to understand what he's actually saying here. It's not using the way that we often think of. The rabbis taught in the scripture and, and there are many in the within the church today that would follow similar lines of thinking that there are four levels of meaning to every text. This is still taught by rabbis and by people in the church. But the, in the context of rabbis, the four levels are, number one, the peshat, which is the simple, plain, literal meaning. And they say that's good. You got to get that, you know, when you feel like it's important. But that's not the best. The second deeper level meaning is the remes, which means hints. It takes us beyond the simple sense, the literal, which is just simple. This takes us into a philosophical or allegorical level that's more helpful to our lives. It depends on the hidden symbolic meanings of words. And so one example is assigning numerical values to Hebrew words and getting hints at deeper meanings than we would otherwise understand. But the third level is even deeper, and it's the drash level. It means to inquire and we're just getting deeper in levels here. You compare it, and you take things that would normally and otherwise just have nothing to do with themselves, and you, you mash them together, and, and you come up with a totally different meaning than what either one of them meant to, meant to mean on its own. It's, it's like a riddle where you just kind of throw things together, and then you can really just do about anything you want with any text, but it's how that they would teach the moral and legal lessons for Jewish people, the, the deepest the fourth level of meaning is the sod, which means secret. It's esoteric. It's mystical. It's, it's the deepest level of meaning they would teach. The mysteries of the divine are unlocked, and they're discovered through this allegorical interpretation. It's so secret, they can't even really explain it, so they give kind of an illustration. If you were to go out before the sun rises and look to the east and watch just before the sun rose and the, the fingers of rays of light that would come up, that's the kind of the level of meaning that we're looking for in here. The, there's just the uh, a radiance that begins to rise before the sun does, the finger-like radiance. Uh, that's what you're after. And you can't even look at it head on. You have to kind of look at it out of the corner of your eye. That's how they explain how to get to this. It's so ethereal, esoteric, and mystical. I, I wanted to walk through Genesis 1-1 as an example for uh, what this would look like, but I just didn't, I, for one thing, I don't think there's time, but for two, uh, I don't think it would satisfy anything or be of any benefit other than just curiosity. Suffice it to say, they, t- they teach that within each of those four levels of meaning, each one has 600,000 different interpretations. Within each of the four levels of meaning, 
Essentially, you can do anything with any text for any reason, and it's valid as long as it doesn't go against their core teachings. But, uh, you know, who decided the core teachings if it wasn't the Scripture? That's the question. But that's what passes for interpretation for so many, even in the church. Whatever somebody wants to say, whatever comes to someone's mind after reading, that passes for interpretation. And that's how we get into the, the struggle of, well, that's your interpretation, but that's not my interpretation, Right? The question that we endeavor to ask when we study the Scriptures is not, what's my interpretation? What do I think you need to hear? What do I think you should be learning from this? Instead, it's, what what did God mean when He wrote this? Because God wrote all of Scripture. He used human beings, but it was God's inspiration of these words, every word. What did God mean? Because He's capable, He's very capable of communicating exactly what He means, to say what He means and to mean what He says. He doesn't need me to come along and introduce some novel idea, you know, um, novel idea number 345,287 of the literal interpretation. There's just one, what God meant. And he doesn't try to contradict himself or confuse us by what he says. So that's why we get nervous when we hear the word allegory, allegorical interpretation. We say, let's, let's stay away from that. The literal meaning so often becomes the least significant meaning in those ways of understanding what the Bible says. And for so many, it doesn't even matter if it happened. You know, the, the Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's actually symbolic and allegorical. No, no, that's what it said. That's what it meant. That's what it still means. So we flatly reject any of those levels of meaning. I don't think that's what Paul meant here when he said this either. He had already reviewed that literal account as if there was a person named Abraham and a person named Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. But he says, if we want to understand the larger point based on this literal account, let's use it to illustrate it correctly. Don't focus on Abraham, he says. He was just the receiver of God's promise. The difference was the women involved, right? As God used them and worked through them, verse 24 Paul says here, the women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So there are two covenants. The law and God's promise. The law is dependent on you, your ideas, your efforts, your works. Mount Sinai is where God gave the law to Moses, so that's why they're connected here. Hagar and Abraham together had their own ideas, their efforts, but it didn't bring about God's promise. When Abraham and Sarah together waited for God's fulfillment, while they obeyed God, they were waiting and trusting and obeying, that's when Isaac was born. Obviously, they still had responsibilities to do, right? Isaac was not virgin-born, right? They had their responsibilities to fulfill, but God did it through them as they obeyed and trusted. God brought about His promise. Now, here's where the Jewish people would have been absolutely horrified and offended by what Paul was teaching, this interpretation from the chapters of Genesis. There's an earthly Jerusalem and a heavenly Jerusalem, right? (laughs) I I had those reversed. Earthly Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem. Everybody agreed on that, but in the Jewish mind, only Jewish people and Jewish converts could be part of Jerusalem, particularly the heavenly, the above Jerusalem. Paul says here that the earthly Jerusalem is represented by Hagar, not Sarah. Slavery, not freedom. The word correspond here means it all fits together. It's all in the same row. 
It's really we, Paul says, me and these Gentiles and Jewish people who believe in Jesus by grace through faith. It's we who are part of the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, with freedom and inheritance and God's promise. The Jewish people would have just, the mind explosion, right? Paul's teaching them that you've interpreted the whole thing wrong. You thought you were born into it through Abraham? You thought you could obey the law and be part of it? Or you thought you could obey the law to make yourself part of it if you weren't born Jewish? Most of the people, many of the people born to Abraham are still in slavery to the law. And they're not part of the earthly, uh, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above. To become part of the line of Abraham through Sarah To have freedom, you must reject the law as your answer, your own efforts. You've got to cling to Jesus through faith. He's the answer, not me. That's how we get into the heavenly Jerusalem. And Hebrews 11 refer to this heavenly city that God builds, not that we build through our own works. And so Paul explains the picture here that illustrates the point of the law and the gospel. The law and the gospel work beautifully together. They, they work well together when they're understood properly. The law brings you to the gospel for salvation. It doesn't bring you to salvation. So after reading the scripture, Paul correctly interprets it for them. He says, here's how to understand it. Here, here's how we interpret it so that we understand what it means. And he even uses Isaiah 54, 1 to further the point. He, he quotes it here, rejoice, O barren one. The verses referred to Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, because just after Isaiah's time, they would be exiled. The people would be thrown out. The city would be leveled, but then it would be restored. So Paul uses it here to contrast the earthly Jerusalem from the heavenly one that comes through faith. It's not your efforts. It's not, it's not the law. So if you're going to counter false teaching, you've got to ensure that you're grounded in Scripture through reading it and through interpreting it, understanding it. And if you're interested, Jesus used this strategy as well. In Luke 24, 27, I neglected to include this in your notes, so if you want to remember that, Luke 24, 27, or write that there, Jesus was with the two disciples on the road after his resurrection, and he was explaining to them, he was, he was teaching them. It says that he interpreted to them in the Scriptures all the things concerning himself. So he, he was reading to them and, and interpreting it, and understanding and relating the meaning to them. Those are the first two steps. Read and relate the Scripture. Step three, if we're going to counter false or wrong teaching, the third step in verses 28 to 31 is to respond to Scripture. Respond to it. This is where all teaching is intended to go, isn't it? When you listen to teaching, you're supposed to do something with it. You're either going to take it and, and reject it, say, nope, that's not something I want, or you're going to respond, you're going to take it and, and change in some way, change the way you think, or change what you believe, or you're going to change how you feel. Maybe it's act different, or react differently, or speak different, whatever it's going to be. You're supposed to be different as a result of teaching. Otherwise, there's no point. It's just head knowledge. It goes nowhere. That's why the effects and the consequences of false teaching get inside of us, and they become evident. Because when you start believing teaching, you start living it out right? You either believe what you hear or reject it. When you actually do believe it, you start living it out. And no matter what we say about what we believe, no matter what we say we think and we agree with, if we look at our lives, as the old adage goes, what you, uh, your actions speak louder than your words, right? Well, I say I believe this, but I'm not living it out. I haven't really truly 
believed it. So we've looked at the scripture, we've read it, we've related the interpretation as God intended. Now what? That's the question. So what? What do we do with it? That's these verses, application. Respond to it in belief through action. And to arrive there, Paul uses three comparisons. The first comparison, comparison A, is in verse 28. It's Isaac to Christians as children of promise. As children of promise. He says it's, it's not ethnicity, it's not birth, it's not law obedience, it's the grace of God in Jesus that you receive through faith in him. That's what makes us children of promise, like Isaac was. And in him, you know what he, did you catch what he says here? He says in verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac might become children of promise. Is that what he says? You are. In Jesus, you already are children of promise like Isaac was. You can't do it your way. You can't add your works. That's how it is. That's comparison A. Comparison B, verse 29, Isaac to Christians as persecuted. You remember in Genesis that Ishmael laughed at Isaac during uh, the party that they threw for Isaac as he was being weaned. He's, he's growing into a young boy, and so they had this celebration, and Ishmael was there, and he's laughing. He's, he's persecuting Isaac. The comparison here is that persecution will come to Christians. For those who are not born according to the flesh, they will, the, the people who are born according to the flesh will persecute those who are born according to the Spirit. He says, so it is now. That persecution can come in all different ways. You know, we see it across the world in martyrdom. Um, we hear about it in uh, different kinds of persecution, mocking, scoffing, trying to tear things down, and, uh, and more. There are more ways. But in context here, the persecution is actually in the form of bringing this false teaching. Trying to get you to obey the law is persecution it, uh, against your faith. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24. He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That persecution is going to come because of our connection with Jesus, the embodiment of the truth. He says, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And he goes on, he says, many, the love of many will grow cold because of that false teaching that's pulling people away. The truth of the gospel, though, will be proclaimed to the whole world. That's part of persecution. Just follow me into law. Get back into the rules. Get back into doing this yourself. That's what the Judaizers were saying. Quit trusting Jesus to be your righteousness. Do it yourself. You've got this. The flattery part, right? You can do it. You have the power within you. You know, all the teaching and all the things that we hear, and go, 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 yay, we can do this. You know, let's get riled up. That's what the law says. That's how God's law is twisted in persecution against you. Get away from that faith in Jesus. Follow me into the law. So the comparison is Isaac to Christians as children of promise, as those who are persecuted, and then C, verses 30 to 31, Isaac to Christians as pardoned heirs. Pardoned heirs. Just like Isaac, we as Christians are pardoned. We're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And we inherit with the free son rather than remaining slaves. But what is supposed to happen to the slave woman and her son? What does he say in verse 30? Cast them out. Remember, who was the slave woman? It was the old covenant. It was the law. Cast it out. Get rid of it. It was the old covenant of obey the law to stay in the land of promise and blessing. The new covenant is what God gave to Abraham when he said, believe what I've said, and Abraham did, and that was counted to him as righteousness. When you believe, what did verse 28 say? You brothers are children of promise. 
He repeats it here in verse 31 in other words. So brothers, we are not, right now we are not children of the slave but of the free woman because of Jesus. Here's the truth. We already are these people, these children, these inheritors, these, these pardoned heirs. You don't have to try to become them through obedience. You already are. In fact, when you try to do it, when you try to make yourself that, you're countering God's work. You say, well, I, you know, what Jesus did when he did all, when he was completely righteous, his entire life of perfect righteousness, it wasn't enough. I have to do it. Either I'm going to try to do it better than Jesus did or I'm going to do what he forgot to do when I try to do it myself. He says, cast it out. That's the application. That's, that's what we're supposed to do to respond to this. The comparisons help drive home this point, and I love how he reminds us to keep our eyes on the Scripture. Verse 30, he says, what does the Scripture say? <laughs> cast it out. Cast out your works. Get rid of your ideas about what holiness and godliness looks like. This is the new law, the new commandment that Jesus gives to love. To love. When you love... <laughs> You're not going to look for the lines and the boundaries. We talked about this Wednesday night with the students. When you love Jesus, you're not looking for what's the box that I need to check so I can move on and get back to what I want to do, right? When I love, I'm not looking for just the minimum and the, and the boundaries and sometimes push the boundaries because that's what we like to do. That's how we're all wired to break those boundaries of God. Instead, Jesus, tell me what else I can do. How much more can I do? How, how can I love you? How can I love others? And there's no surprise here. Jesus used this same strategy in John 14. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. When we love him, that's when we obey. Not when we love ourselves or, or want to save ourselves, and so we try to work really hard and come up with a bunch of rules to make ourselves obey. It's when we love Jesus. And that's what led Augustine to say 1,600 years ago, the rule for your life, you need one rule, love God and do what you like. That's it. Because when you love God, when you love Jesus with your whole heart and mind, what you like is still doing that. <laughs> and everything that he said and everything that he gave to us, that's what's most important to us. When our children started to get a little bit older and they wanted to go out, you know, what's our curfew? What time do we have to, when do we need to, you know, and we still have rules, you know, it's not like it's just wide open. And we've talked before about why children still need rules. <laughs> but we gave them this instruction, have fun. Go out there and enjoy the time that you have with your friends and the activities. Just don't sin. <laughs> love Jesus and don't sin. Love Jesus, love your friends, love what he's given you, the ability that you have to go have fun, to enjoy activities, but love him and then you won't sin. Cast out all other rules. And it doesn't make sense to us. You know, we want the rules. Again, our flesh is so familiar and we hold on to the rules. Look at all the things I'm doing. Look at all the things I'm not doing. Look how great I'm doing, right? Like, this is how we measure ourselves, but that's the problem. God gives us the law, not so we can see how well we're doing, but to see how far away we are from it. We can't please God with our own righteousness. One of the dangers that draws us to the law is that rules and laws can produce more immediate results, right? Quicker results. You do this and do that. And Isaac and, and, and Hagar, uh, excuse me, Abraham and Hagar came up with that. They had more immediate results. We've got our own efforts, we've got our own rules and laws, and they produced Ishmael. Waiting on the promise of God and, and just living for him in love for him takes a little bit longer. But it's true lasting change in our hearts that God is pleased with instead of our own efforts, law, which he rejects. Law and grace work together when the law brings you to grace. 
They can't replace each other, though. We, we need the law to bring us to grace. Grace, we can't understand God's grace without the law. See, we, we get so much about the grace of God, and, and we've talked so much about that that so many people in the world know, okay, I know, all you got to do is believe in Jesus and you go to heaven. Because we haven't given them the law first that says you can't go to heaven. None of us can go to heaven. None of us lives for God or for the glory of our God and for His purposes and for His glory, for His praise. We live for ourselves, and we deserve His punishment forever, but God's grace in Jesus comes to save us. See, we don't understand grace until we've understood law. God, so often we misunderstand grace and we misuse it. We say, you know, to a, a child who's misbehaving, well, we just need to be gracious. You know, just, just give grace. And grace is not sweeping under the rug sin. It's not just overlooking wrong like, well, it's okay, it doesn't matter. That's not what grace does. The law works together with grace so that we can see what I should receive is God's punishment forever, but Jesus took that. That's the good news, the grace, the unmerited favor of God. So we cling to Jesus. Going to the law moves us backward, not forward. There is no shared inheritance between law and grace. And I'm convinced this is, this is part of a large reason for why so many people in the church walk away. Because all they hear is grace, 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 grace. Okay, so then it doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter what I say. doesn't matter what I do. I can just walk away. I'm fine. God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life no matter what happens, right? People don't even know they need Jesus because when we don't preach law and then grace, they don't understand the grace. We need both, and that's why they work together so well, but that's why we can't trust in the law because the law can never do what grace does to save us. Our application, since we've run out of time, <laughs> is the first one there is love Jesus. And some of you say, well, that, you know, we've said that a lot, and that just seems so simple. But if you get nothing else, if you were sleeping for the last 45 minutes and you've just woken up, if you don't get anything else, love Jesus. That's the, the most important thing. Always get that, always have that. The second part, evaluate all teaching with Scripture. Read it, relate it, respond to it. The first blank is respond to it, cling to the, the truth of, the, of Jesus in the gospel. Our only other option is reject it. Respond to it by believing and then living out that belief in the truth of loving Jesus. We're not going to be perfect, but Jesus will never let us go. And he's going to keep working on us to keep making us more like him to conform us to his image for our good and for his glory. And Father, we praise you for that truth, Lord, the promise that you give. God, you give us so many promises, so much to be hopeful for, to place our faith and our trust in. God, all of the truth and all of the, the law and all of your grace is summed up and is in reality, it exists in a person, Jesus. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the truth and the love that he is. God, thank you that you have shown him to us and revealed him to us. And God, that you keep on doing it. Father, we think we've been through Galatians for these several weeks and we think we've got it. No law, only grace. But God, we don't got it. Lord, we somehow still miss it every day. We fall back to law. We fall back to rules. God, we don't love like we should, Father. Help us to love Jesus. Lord, help us to be in awe of him, to fear him, to worship him, to love him. 
God, he is the Lord. He is the Savior. And God, by grace, your grace to us, when we believe in him, he can be our Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that for every person in this room, for everyone who might be listening or watching online. God, help us to be the people that will bring this truth to the people around us. Lord, that you would be glorified and praised, that we would bring more people into the crowd of people proclaiming your name forever. Your name is great. You are perfect. You are holy. You are love. Father, we praise you. We worship you in Jesus' great and holy, mighty name. Amen.